There's always that person you look up to. The person that knows what's happening before you do, and the person that explains it all and doesn't make you feel stupid. Do you know what I'm talking about? Should I actually be watching Bravo? Is Jessica Simpson coming back? Is Shia LaBeouf really the style god of our time? Look, we all want that person in our lives, and in times like these, thank god it's Nomi Fry. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Nomi Fry, staff writer at The New Yorker. In our wide-ranging discussion, Fry explores what pop culture can teach us about ourselves, explains why she sees herself as a writer rather than a journalist, and demands answers for how Taylor Swift accomplished what she couldn't, even with 25 years of therapy. Because you are a professional journalist. I guess so, even though I don't really... Um yeah, I'm a, I, I tend to think of myself more as a writer because I'm not, but I have done reporting and stuff. I just, I, I'm not like a hard journalist, I guess, even though I should probably not say that, but I, I'm more of a cult. I think of myself more as, as a culture writer, critic, I guess, but yeah, I guess I'm a journalist. I work for a magazine. Yeah. You work for the New Yorker? Yeah. I work for the New Yorker. Yeah. And what's, okay. Well, what's the difference between a journalist and a writer? I'm not exactly sure why I tend not to think of myself as a journalist um, because I think by definition, if you work for a journal, you're a journalist. But I guess I, because I, the way my career developed, it's not like I've been, um, I was, you know, an aspiring academic and then I taught a bunch in like a college and a university. Taught at NYU and RISD. I taught at NYU and at RISD. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, yes. Um, Which are, I, just as a sidebar, that's like two of the most. That's like saying, oh, I played soccer for, you know, Real Madrid and Manchester yeah, United. Yeah, but I was like an adjunct, a very badly paid adjunct, and I didn't have like tenure. You know, I wasn't, I also don't have a PhD. I have a master's. So I, the, my ability to be like a tenured professor i mean i think it's hard for everyone now even though even people who have like really advanced you know advanced degrees but um i i wasn't really i was kind of a failed academic i went to grad school and i never finished i didn't write my dissertation in english literature so i only had my masters wait why did you not finish i decided that i didn't want to be an academic, I guess. And I just didn't, didn't really, I had a hard time writing my dissertation and I love being a student. I didn't necessarily want to be a professor, I guess you could say. Right. Um, And also I think it is really, really difficult to get a job right now. Had I like loved it and been in love with it, then I I would have done it. But I, I felt like it was too many hoops to jump through to make it to the other side of something I wasn't sure that I really wanted to do ultimately. Yeah. So that's sort of a long way <laughs> to, to say like why I never finished. And then, yes, just to, to your, you know, comment about how it's like, you know, teaching at these good places. Yes, for sure. But also it's, you know, there's a lot of like people more qualified than myself, you know, also struggling through like the sort of adjunct lifestyle. Sure. It's, you know, it's just like anything else nowadays with like, quote unquote, the gig economy. It's like what academia is turning into as well, not just 
you know, freelance journalism, freelance, you know, like driving an Uber, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. area you want to look at, it's, um, that's the direction things are going, unfortunately. Right. I guess, so I guess the separation between writer and journalist, I guess I was always a writer, like even when I was neck deep, like from when I was a child or whatever, and I just wrote things, you know, for myself then when I was um, in college and in graduate school, uh, but it wasn't really journalistic so so I, I I didn't do it from the jump you know I didn't like intern at a newspaper and then was like a junior court reporter or, you know all, all the things right. you sort of I think about when I hear the word you weren't like some gumshoe I wasn't a gumshoe yeah. and I wasn't and I also didn't really work in magazine like the only job I had in mag the first job I had in magazines in America, because I'm originally from Israel, which we can talk about later, but was uh, being a fact checker at Us Weekly, which I've talked about a bunch on other podcasts. <laughs> um, but th- and that's certainly not like what y- what one thinks of when one thinks of like journalism, you know? Right. So it- it's it's I-, I I went into I came into the world of magazines and newspapers relatively late in my life. I think that's kind of why I think of myself as a writer yeah. rather than a journalist. Well, I think to a lot of people, you are, first off, in terms of your reputation amongst every other respected journalist, writer, pop culture fan, you are like the highest of high bars. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm serious. So all, all the people that I, when I told people that I was going to talk to you, first off, every single person told me to make sure I say know me and not uh-huh. Naomi. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's that's nice. Yeah. And they were all just like, you, you should ask her just like the source. Like, what is her source? What is the source? And it's funny because that was my top question to talk to you about. Okay. And I say that because, you know, looking at your stuff that you've done for The New Yorker and, you know, everything, you have an ability to see everything before it becomes mainstream. Hmm. And which is uh, obviously probably a strong a trait that you need for your job. But I mean, we're talking Shia stuff. We're talking like all the pop culture waves, like you see them before they, before they crash. Like what, how do you know that? And where does that come from? Well, I mean, I think first of all, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad if that's the way it seems, I think I'm probably basically the, the way I feel is like, I'm always trying to, to keep up and like always on the verge of like, Oh, like before it becomes like really pathetic, you know, like the the jokes that people always say about the times, like the times is on it, you know, like sort of like doing a story like seven years too late about sure. a trend or something. I mean, God bless. I love the times. And I don't think that's even necessarily true, but that's sort of a, a thing people say. Um, but I, so I, I always feel on the verge of that sort of cliche of like, you know, kind of running after whatever the trend or the cultural you know, hot button issue is or, um, but I mean, if, if I do manage to whatever, know, I guess what's going on in, in some capacity is I think I just try to be attuned to people, whether it's on social media, um, or, uh, it's, you know, just talking to people, meeting people and trying to be, uh, yeah, I guess just sensitive to what people are talking about and, and caring about. And I think this is actually interesting because I, 
I never really thought about this, but now that you're asking me this, I think it comes maybe from a f- wow. We're uh, this is getting a little psychological, but it comes it, from a from a fear of like being humiliated. <laughs> really? <laughs> because yeah, I don't. Because I have I, that fear, but I'm not. I can't do what you do. Because well, <laughs> I mean, you know, it doesn't come just from that. Obviously, I'm like very interested in culture. I'm like always, you know, that's, that's the main thing. You have to be interested and you have to be curious. I think that's, that's the main thing of like, how do you like, you know, keep tabs on what's going on or like, how do you, um, so first of all, you have to care, which, you know, some people do, some people don't, uh, like for instance, my husband doesn't, definitely doesn't care as much about those kinds of things as I do. And so he doesn't, seek it out. You know, he doesn't look out for it. He's interested in other things or in other modes of thought or like knowledge collecting, I guess. But it's, he just doesn't, he's not as interested in that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um, as I am. And so he won't be keeping abreast of things like I try to do. So, so I think interest and curiosity and like a desire to sort of keep up and know what's going on is of course the first, the first thing that you need if you sort of want to try to know what's going on and again not that I always think that I do but I so that's the first thing and the second thing is that that fear of humiliation thing that I said I think it's because I I think of myself in a lot of ways as kind of an outsider even though I know that's in other ways not completely true or not totally true or not at all true maybe at this point but I feel like I I grew up you know I'm an immigrant I came to America I spent some of my childhood in America because my dad worked here some of the time but I'm not American I'm is I mean now I'm American now I have citizenship but I mean flex yeah <laughs> yeah if uh, that means anything anymore yeah I mean whatever it means <laughs> you know but it but it's you know for most of my life I've been just, you know, an Israeli citizen. And it took me a long time to get a green card. Then it took me a while to get citizenship. It, it, it was all, all a very long process. But my mentality is that of a person who's coming from the outside, which I am, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't really grow up here. I only came to live here full time in my mid 20s. And so I think I always was afraid of like seeming like I don't know what's going on, which I often didn't, you know, because I didn't like, I I remember like coming when I was whatever, like 10 years old and we would come for the summers occasionally because like my dad worked here, but I wouldn't, you know, I would spend the whole year in Israel. My life was in Israel. And then suddenly we would come for a couple months and I would be, I mean, this was every couple of years we would come during the summer. So from when I was like, whatever, five to when I was And where would you be coming here? In Seattle. In Seattle. Always in Seattle. Okay. So, you know, my parents would always like sign me up for some day camp because they didn't, you know, they had to do something with me and I would go into camp and this was, mind you, in the eighties. So it wasn't like there wasn't the internet. Like it, it was harder to get knowledge in sure. places that were farther out. And I I would come in and I wouldn't know anything. You know, they would be talking about like, the I don't know. The kids would be. Yeah, yeah. They would be talking about like 
Whitney Houston or whatever, you know, like the, the new album or they would t- be talking about a movie that just came out, you know, like, right. I don't even know what Rocky for, you know, I, <laughs> sure. I don't. And you could skip that. And one. right. <laughs> <laughs> now I know that, but yeah. I didn't know that then. Right. And so and, and because in Israel had much more limited, like things took months and months to get to Israel, you yeah. know, like new movies and all of that. There's, so I globalization wasn't really a thing. Exactly. So everything moved much slower and I would come and I wouldn't really know or the way they were dressed, fashion, everything, you know, all of those like pop cultural markers. And I would feel very shy about it. You know, right. and I would be kind of quiet and I wouldn't, but I would listen, you know, because okay. I would be like, I didn't want to be humiliated. Like, it, which, which isn't to say it's not like my goal was to be in the center of the action and know everything at that point. I just didn't want to be like embarrassed. So I was kind of quiet um, because I knew I didn't know anything. And I would, but I would kind of try to piece together um, a puzzle out of like little bits of information that I would hear people say, you know, right. I mean, this sounds like it was premeditated. Of course it wasn't. This is just, if I'm thinking back about how I would feel and act, I think it probably came from that of like trying to know what people were talking about and not totally letting on. Maybe probably it was very obvious to people that I didn't know what was going on. But like in my mind, I was like, I'm not embarrassing myself. I'm like trying to understand what's happening and and fit in. And again, not to be in the center of the group, but just not to be the nerd that knows nothing. Yeah. You know? And so um, I'm thinking that maybe, yeah. So I think interest and curiosity, but then I'm thinking that the other piece of this is, it's turned into from fitting in, it's turned into like, okay, of course, like, there's my own interest and my own desires of, like, what's interesting and good and, you know, fascinating in my mind comes way more into play than it did when I was eight. And I was like, I should see Rocky IV, you know? Like, my taste has developed (laughs) since then. Well, it's it's because it's one thing to to observe, and it's another thing to be able to, you know, like, the way that you write, and I think why so many people love your writing and your ability to tell stories is there are writers who communicate about something and they speak to their reader as if they are dull and uninformed and need this information to be mm-hmm. happy. And you communicate, the way that you write is like a way of excitement and with curiosity into which you kind of play along that you are the reader and you are exploring this excitement at the same time the reader is. Yeah. So the reader feels like, they're alongside with you versus I'm, I'm learning from you and then I move on. Like it's a really rare thing. And when I was trying to look through all your writings and not like, you know, overanalyze, but I was like, what is it that makes this so good and why so many people love this too? And I I wonder if it's that. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. Yeah. I, I think, I think at least I try to, again, now that I'm thinking of this whole like, outsider child perspective thing. Of course, I do think that that might have been the starting point, but I have developed since then to a position where I can say, this is why it's actually, why X is actually interesting. Mm -hmm. This is why I look at it with interest. And for me, 
that sort of like attraction to something that's beyond um I mean it's intellectual it's a lot of it is intellectual but it it's also there's something about it that has to be visceral I guess in a way mm-hmm. that's beyond that's emotional there's an emotional pull or there's some level of desire that's like beyond just like oh this is you know which is why I think like thinking about things like fashion or you know it's things that have to do that are cerebral in some ways you know if you think about design you know certain decisions the designers make or cultural influences that they use but it's also um but it's also emotional mm-hmm. and it there's there's things like even you know i was just saying like cultural influences those those things are just are they're beyond intellectual they remind us of so many things about yeah about the way you felt when somebody said did you watch rocky 4 and you didn't know what they were talking about or yeah. if you finally watched it and you're like that movie's amazing because x and y you know yeah uh or that movie sucked because <laughs> yeah. x and y and you remember like who you saw it with and what you were wearing and what you felt like you know, I, I don't know just like a, a it's it's um those things are as important probably as the sort of more analytical, I yeah. guess, um, way of, of looking at cultural objects. I mean, it's, it's a very obvious thing to say. It's, no, it, this no, isn't, it's, yeah, it's. Well, it's, I mean, it, it makes me wonder when you write now, mm-hmm. are you writing to yourself at that age that didn't know what Rocky Four was? In some ways. I mean, emotionally always probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you're doing okay then. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, emotionally, not consciously, of course, but yeah, it's about it's about making myself interested in something. It's about impressing myself. It's about impressing other people. It's about trying to figure out something that I that it took me a long time to figure out in my own life, you yeah. know. Um like why something is interesting to me. There's the the a thing that I I'm a little bit afraid of, and that I don't know if there's exactly a solution. And I, I was talking about it with my husband the other day. Um, it's like, how do you? I I told him I was like, I feel like I'm always writing about the same thing. I don't know exactly what that thing is, but I'm always writing about the same thing. And he was like, well. I mean, he was like, no, you know, you're writing about different things and you make different points. And, mm-hmm. um, but someone's perspective and ideology and the way someone looks at the world, that's probably going to remain, of course, people change over the course of their careers and whatever, but, but like you are you, your perspective is your perspective. Um, and that's not a bad thing, you know, which, yeah. which, which links up to the kind of emotional load i guess that you carry with you uh and through which you see the world um if that makes sense because that's gonna be that's your history it totally does and i think like stephen king talks about that Mm -hmm. a lot too whom some people love him or hate him but his his book on writing oh i've heard that's really good it is really good who told me that i i don't remember but somebody i really admire said that it was amazing yeah Yeah, i mean because he talks about a lot of different stuff because mm-hmm. you know it's sobriety and etc mm-hmm. but the one thing that he says and a lot of other writers have said this too mm-hmm. i don't know if he coined it but no one can 
no no matter what other writer what what other education they have or perspective they have no one will ever have your experience mm-hmm. and your experience is really what creates your perspective yeah so no you know there is no other person right. that you know lived between multiple cultures and traveled yeah. a ton and then at the time that you did and just it, it just doesn't exist and it right. will never ever be that case right so that's one thing that you should always you know look at as an advantage mm-hmm. and that you can use to your advantage rather to your disadvantage right so right. i mean I, you know if you say you're writing about the same things all the time <laughs> yeah i don't you know i yeah. don't know i mean yeah. it, it doesn't look like that from what i've read right right i mean it's just that sometimes you get tired of yourself you know what yeah. it's like because you have you know your own story pretty well um, just start a podcast then and, and you just hear others right no but i think it's true talking to other people is important because you get other perspectives um reading other books, reading, you know, like, yeah, filling your life and your mind with the, the, the words and actions of other people is, yeah, it's hopefully goes away towards kind of alleviating that problem of like, you're always saying the same thing or you're just you and you get tired of your own story. Yeah. Like an example I would definitely want to discuss is, so when I walked in here on the table, Mm -hmm. you had Jessica Simpson's, (laughs) was it her autobiography or memoir? Or is that the same thing? Well, I guess it's, I mean, I guess it's autobiography. I mean, I'm not sure. It might be, I think that it's the, it says that it's a memoir, which I, I mean, she she had a co-writer who okay. I actually who I actually know. Um, but like but, that book on the top of my head, yeah, I would walk past that and I would never read it because right. I don't know yeah. and I don't. With all due respect, I'm like she's not someone I would ever think about. Right. But for you, you grab that and you're reading it. Why? Yeah, are you I know it? it's interesting because I think a lot of people have been reading people I'm like friends with and or people I've seen people online, you know, that I like follow on Twitter or something talking about it, and it seems to kind of strike a certain nerve in a way that's maybe a little surprising for something that um, you would think, yeah, it's kind of like she was a sort of like quasi-Christian singer. You like, you, you know, like, yeah. a, a, and and not a very... Father was her manager. Yeah, Papa Joe. Yep. Not a very um, interesting musician, at least on the face of it. As far as I knew, you know, I never really followed her music. I knew as, her as a cultural figure, then as a reality star, her love life, you know... Maybe a little bit trashy. Maybe she was considered a little bit dumb. You know, the, mm-hmm. all all the things that she herself is talking about in uh, her memoir. And I, I, it's, I'm only like a maybe a fourth of the way through or a third of the way through. I'm reading. I'm reading slowly. I'm yeah. savoring it. Um, but it's interesting because it talks about a period. Basically, the the period for me, the period it talks about. Um, mostly, or when it starts getting interesting, like when she gets famous, you know, which is in the early 2000s. Um, because, of course, she starts from when she was born or whatever. But yeah. let's face it, like the really interesting thing is like, okay, and then like I had a hit record. And then what happened? Like when someone actually becomes famous. Yeah. Um, although her voice is like, it's it's actually a very kind of um, weirdly uplifting read you know because she's like i mean she she's religious but it's not that exactly i think it's about her journey it's kind of inspiring you know she she uh i think later on she says she has problems with alcohol and with drug you know so there's that whole facet to it which i always love in a celebrity memoir 
But I think for me, historically, quote unquote, like the period where she got famous was when it starts getting interesting is the period I came to to live in America as an adult. Oh, so here we go. Tapping that nostalgia. And so, yeah, or just like I remember, you know, the days like sort of post 9-11, then like Iraq war, you know, that whole sort of like mid 2000s celebrity culture. I MTV, MTV. Yeah reality television the birth the not the birth the reality television started sooner but sort of like the beginnings of the uh, uh, in, uh, enormous importance of reality television in american culture because her show uh, with what? because her show with nick Lachey was very was that's like what newlyweds or something newlyweds yeah. yeah and i remember literally watching it that was like my, my first year in grad school. So I was in grad school in Baltimore. I didn't I came there I did not know anyone. I had a television. I remember my dad got me as a present. He got me all the DVDs of Sex and the City. Yeah. Um and because he ca- he came to from Israel to help me like set up, you know, to go to like what IKEA or whatever. Yeah, no, it was very nice of him. Um it was uh yeah, it was it was great. My my parents are really good, but um and I would sit and I would watch Sex and the City. Wow. And which I had watched before. Like I had seen it in Israel, but I just mean it was a sort of comfort like rewatching. And I would sure. watch MTV. And I, there was like Jessica and Nick, you know, those were the years. Like the real world Las Vegas. You know, all of those like oh, yeah. horrible. Real World Vegas was really good. Yeah, it was really good. At the Palms. At the Palms. That's right. Yeah, at the Penthouse Suite. That's um, right. Yeah, owned by the Maloof family. But anyway, oh, I'm wow. g- getting getting ahead of myself. So I think for me, it's just interesting. It's, again, things I kind of remember viscerally through my own, as I'm sure many people do in a variety of ways, through my own experience of, of kind of living through it. And it was heightened for me because I had just come to America. So everything was like it's like everything was a little brighter. Like now I'm like used to America. It's like now it's so, I've lived here so long mm-hmm. that things are probably don't hit me as hard. But at the time it was like my first year in America, you know, like living alone. I mean, without my parents. And yeah, that's a big wake up the call first, for a lot of the people. The first time since I was like 15, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah. So I just, so I'm, I'm interested in that aspect of it. Like yeah. to sort of like re- relive or remember you know i guess myself through it in a weird way and also i just love a celebrity memoir um and i love a story of like you know i i love famous people with problems i love like just generally stories about people who who struggle with like uh um addiction and you know stuff like it's it's just it's it's kind of my happy place so why do you love that I think it's something that I never experienced personally, but that Mm -hmm. I was always, I was fascinated by people who were able to go there, you know, to sort of like, for whatever psychological or or physical or, uh, you know, uh, reason were... Um, had gotten to a place where they allow themselves to sort of self-destruct, I guess. Right. Um, 
You should read about uh, a lot of musician memoirs. Then. Oh, I've 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 read a lot of musician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a cup a few shelves here yeah. that you can That's peruse true. after. Um, because I think I'm a very in a lot of ways I'm a controlled con- controlled and fearful person, so I would never, you know, live. Uh, but live you want like to vicariously. That. But yeah, so vicariously, and I think I always had a fear, an unfounded fear that somehow I would find myself in that position so it was all uh, that was when i was younger i think now i one of one of the good things about getting older is that there are things that you're afraid are gonna happen i mean knock wood i'm not dead yet so anything can happen but like um when you were younger you don't know where your life is gonna go right you don't know like am I going to be married? Am I going to be divorced? Am I going to like get addicted to heroin? Am I going to, you know, I mean, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. Am I going to have like four kids? Am I going to have no kids? Like, you know, I, um, uh, so I think I was, uh, much more afraid of what's going to happen. Like who knows what's going to happen? Probably something bad, you know, and getting older as sort of alleviated and, some of those fears at least yeah it's like okay i'm probably too old to like be a teen runaway or something you know what i mean like it's that's not gonna happen that's not part of the story probably also good things aren't gonna happen certain good things but um but some bad things that i was afraid of aren't gonna happen but i think part of the fascination with stories like that was like kind of to try them out for size without actually Right. Really endangering myself or like taking risks and le- that, and learning from these other people's experience. Yeah, because it's not like a, yeah. some sort of love of the you know how a human destroys himself. It's, it's no, no, it's not. I don't wish you know. I never wished anybody ill, yeah. but uh, of course. But um, it's just a very yeah. There's just something g- glamorous about it sometimes, especially when it involves like yeah music or Hollywood fame it's about the difference between a person's outside and inside Mm. which is always interesting you know how things look versus what they actually are you know you see like something that looks very beautiful glamorous wealthy but it's actually things are like rotten to the core (laughs) inside there's always uh, something uh uh fascinating about that yeah Hey folks, I want to take a second and talk to you all about Mockingbird and thank them for supporting us this week. Especially in these somewhat uncertain times, I'm so grateful to all of our sponsors, but it speaks volumes when I see a smaller brand step it up. Mockingbird makes beautiful protective products for personal technology. I've been using Mockingbird's cases for my MacBook Pro and iPad Mini and can't say enough good things about it. For me, the tech accessory world often feels like a compromise between utility or design. But Mockingbird's cases serve both. Their design aesthetic is minimal, and I love the subtle magnetic closure and suiting fabric lining they use. All their goods are made right here in small batches in the U.S. But Mockingbird is a benefit corporation, meaning that they meet the highest standards of verified social and environmental performance, public transparency, and legal accountability to balance profit and purpose. Benefit corporations are accelerating a global culture shift to redefine success in business and build a more inclusive and sustainable economy. A portion of their proceeds go to the Innocence Project, 
an organization that exonerates the wrongly convicted through DNA testing and reforms the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. Check out their goods at www.buymockingbird.com or in the show notes on the pod. And stay tuned for an upcoming piece we're working on together. Check it out, Mockingbird. Visit bymckngbrd.com. That's buymockingbird.com. Do you know about Judy Sill, the musician? Yeah, so I just, I mean, it's. I just saw that there was the... Um, did you see that they have like the forgotten obituary? You know how the Times oh, does snap, this no. now? So the Times has this actually really nice thing where like people of the past who died, you know, yeah. whether, whenever, like 60s, you know, uh, in his, 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 some historical point didn't get an obituary at the time because they weren't yeah, recognized. Yeah, no one knew that she died for a long time. And, but have subsequently gained... Some prominence or some people know, I mean, not necessarily that they became like super famous after dying, but that the Times deems them important enough to write an obituary after the fact. So actually, she had an obituary, this was like last week, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, geez, I I have to check it out. Yeah, they just published it. And I looked at it and I have to admit, I didn't, I... I was looking phenomenal I, folk singer and right. So I I was looking and I was like, oh yeah. I mean, because I remember hearing about her and I remember that she was because I'm always like, oh, heroin addict. I need to look into this. <laughs> um, and I said, oh, they did this obituary. They did this because I know that they're doing this project of like writing about forgotten people. Um, but I have to admit, I didn't. I need to go back and read the obituary. But they just published it, so look into it oh for sure yeah yeah her because this is one of those things that like i really attribute stuff like spotify and places Mm -hmm. where you know when you think about how people are consuming music now Mm -hmm. like way back in the day the only music you heard on the radio was in most cases yeah was new music yeah so like the mainstream listener would be listening to new music all the time and now you know you think about how people listen to music in the digital era a lot of you know it's it's weird that uh, songs that are 20 years old are charting, you know, yes. where all of a sudden people are discovering Steely Dan the same time they're discovering Drake. Yes. And it's a place for some reason, both of these artists who can be extremely different mm-hmm. and have very different types of work mm-hmm. be in the exact same level playing field. Yeah. And it's it's something I actually kind of love about how people listen to music digitally now. Yeah. To where, you know, my little brother and I will make playlists and we send it back and forth yeah, yeah. to each other. And we'll always be adding like various super obscure, uh, like there's there was a, uh, I think he was an Oxford professor named Pete Dello, who okay. was like a huge influence on the kinks huh. and all this stuff. And okay. yeah, like he had this thing called like Pete Dello and Friends. Okay. Someone will probably listen to this and correct me and say he taught somewhere else. But like he was a music professor okay. and his music is freaking insane. So but, this is like early 60s? Yeah, or? early 60s. Yeah. Uh, there was another, there's another band called Honey Bus. Okay, that Honey Bus. Okay. Honey bu- oh, That's a good name. It's banging. Uh-huh. The, the, their whole album just slaps. And they were totally eclipsed by the Beatles. Because wow. the Beatles were like, people were like, oh, this sounds like the Beatles. I'd rather listen to the Beatles. Sure. Uh, but Honey Bus, pretty good. Okay. But things like Spotify and all these other services now yeah. will put this on there. And you hear this and all of a sudden you can, you know, time warp into this 1960 you know, capsule where that band has the same sort of 
notoriety and play yeah. as something else. Oh yeah. That's so. yeah, that's really interesting. It's right. I mean, you do have to have the sort of curiosity and the need. Some people will just want to listen to Drake. To Drake, which is fine, you know. <laughs> I guess. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, it I is what it is, but I yeah. Um, but that's interesting because it's kind of it's a little bit like the opposite of the sort of no- nostalgia thing, I guess, because it's like something that you don't have a context for something that you don't have a memory of like for instance steely dan when i was growing up i have i have one sister she's seven years older and she loved steely dan when i was so say i was like eight and she was 15 and she would listen to steely dan and so i grew up with steely dan okay um so for me when i hear steely dan now um it brings back all of these like very specific memories right. or like very, I like know all the, not maybe not all this, but like I'm, I'm familiar with it. Which album was she listening to? Um, she would listen to, uh, Aja, Katie Lyde, like all, all of them. Like Correct. she had, she had like, yeah, I mean, I just, it's, she had them on tape. This was the era of tapes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would just hear it, you know, all the time because she listened to it. So if it comes up on the radio now, it brings up a very specific feeling. And I didn't even, actually at the time, if I'm thinking about it now, I didn't really have a context for it. Because I was, yeah, because I'm like eight or seven or whatever, and yeah. I'm listening to this music, and it's just music my sister likes. But subsequently, years Many years later, you know, in my 20s or 30s or whatever, I'm like, oh, Steely Dan, they they went to bar. They did, you know, like yeah. you get all the whatever context of like what it meant for culture and where they were situated, yeah. which I completely didn't have. So that was my Spotify experience when I was like seven, you know, listening to my sister. When you That's, overhear something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because I'm like that. I think for some reason because I don't really have that good of a relationship with my dad anymore mm-hmm. because my, my dad's has had Parkinson's for so long. Mm-hmm. I can't, I don't really get to have the adult conversations sure. that like people my age would have with their parents. Mm-hmm. So I'm like constantly trying to find some way to connect to him mm-hmm. through the music that he listened to or was a part of mm-hmm. at that era. Mm-hmm. So I basically am only, you know, my dad played with uh, Dan Peak from America and all those guys. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, well. And, um, and so I would, but I remember him showing me America when I was younger mm-hmm. and me being like, this stuff sucks. Like yeah. I want to listen to Michael Jackson, dad. Sure. And now I'm listening to America and I'm like, Oh, I remember when my dad showed me this. I wish yeah. I wasn't such an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, right. But you wanted to listen to Drake or whatever. Yeah. To the Drake of the, yeah. To the Drake of the era. Yeah. Um, anyway, this, that's, that's very fascinating. And I did not expect any of these answers or responses yeah. that I'm getting for you. <laughs> so there's a, I want to jump to a different part of this sure. because first off, you've single-handedly achieved every cool job to have from <laughs> writing from the New Yorker, copy editing Us Weekly, working at the New York fact Times. Fact-checking in Us Weekly. Okay. Fact-checking. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's all about I the mean, same. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously you're, you know, you taught at RISD and NYU, also taught James Franco, which is, we don't have to discuss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what jobs have you had that you don't think are cool or you aren't particularly proud of? Oh, many jobs. I mean, like all the jobs I had in high school, for what instance. Was that? I worked at an ice cream store. 
Okay. When I was all throughout senior year, and I always was very, I mean, it, it's all fine jobs. Like, again, no, no job is like Sure, there's horrible. nothing that's, There's nothing. I mean, I was a dishwasher when yeah, I was Yeah, I mean, everybody yeah. did, you know, what they had to do. But um, I worked at, and this is back in Israel. This was in Haifa where I grew up. Um, I worked at a ice cream store, and I was always really anxious that the there was like a big refrigerator in the back where you kept you know there was like this display case there was a walk-in and i remember one time i thought that because the the owner was always like make sure that the temperature that the door is closed you know he like put the fear of god into me or something i guess and i i kept being like oh my god it's like it's the, the temperature is going up. It's all going to melt. Like, I, I just remember being very anxious all the time that something was going to go wrong with like the walk-in refrigerator. That's awesome. <laughs> well, you were, you were a good employee. It sounds like. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was, yeah, I was, I'm always a very sort of, uh, or for the most part, I think I'm an anxious and responsive employee Yeah, for better or worse. Um, that was one job. I was a waitress in high school in a, in a, at least a couple places um and i was a very bad waitress and that was another job where i was very anxious yeah yeah because i was always like people are gonna like yell at me like things aren't coming out fast enough you know it, the it service was, industry is so thankless yeah it, it wasn't like a it wasn't uh it, it, it wasn't a great experience yeah. um so there's something as you're the person who understands culture way before everyone else does, <laughs> there's something that has kind of started to happen these days, and that is like this rise of like overt sharing and acceptance and culture, and like really, really loving yourself no matter what, and self care and self love, super big self care mm-hmm. and self love. So, how do you feel about this rise of like happy and acceptance culture and? Do you ever feel people are trying to jump on the bagan, jump on the bandwagon that don't deserve it, or is believing that a part of the problem? Okay, I think um, I think generally it's a good it's a good thing. Obviously, mm-hmm. I would like to have some of that myself. Like, I would like to know the secrets of how to achieve uh, self self acceptance and self love mm-hmm. for sure. I think uh, this has been, you know, written about a lot by, you know, many people, but I think obviously this is also something uh, that has become very commodified, you know, the kind of like everybody's selling self-care and self-love now, right? Yeah. It's like a, a lot of the time, um, the the promise now instead of like, oh, you have to kill yourself with a diet. Now we're selling like, oh, take these supplements and use this like, I don't know, like face oil or something in order to like accept yourself. You know, it's just it's just like any other product. It's become a kind of thing that you can, the promise of the purchase, you know, the, the promise of what you will achieve, the self-love and self-care and self-acceptance you will achieve once you buy our product is, is of course, you know, it's... It's a little Terry Gilliam Brazil yeah, type yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, sort of snake oily. Um, yeah. So obviously that's an issue with that, that, you know, many people have written about, like the wellness industry is... is but, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in two minds about it. Like I was watching the new Goop show, for instance, uh-huh. uh, the, the, the Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow show on Netflix, which is like 
they go, her staff go and do these experiences that are supposed to lead to, you know, greater, you know, wellness, like women's sexuality, knowing your sexuality or like coming to terms with the past trauma by doing ayahuasca or no, they were doing mushrooms there, whatever, like psychedelic okay. experiences, you know, all of these like various avenues that you can take to sort of better yourself and, and get the most out of life and, and learn to live with yourself happily and peacefully. And in some ways, it's ridiculous because, again, it's like obviously all built around this product and, you know, Gwyneth herself. It is built around a capitalist mindset. Yes. Yeah. 100%. But in other ways, you know, I was looking at it and I was like, you know, maybe maybe I should take mushrooms and learn to love myself. You know what I mean? Like, and it's sure. it's not, th- these things aren't intrinsically bad, you know, or intrinsically um, like a swindle, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I guess it's 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 I have conflicted feelings about it. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Uh, yeah, and I uh, I'm, I mean I'm with you on that. But yeah, I, yeah. There's like a circumventing nature of just like how can I get happy fast? Yes. When so much of you know therapy and all these other things are really about unpacking years and years of experience on your life. Totally. And there's not really a pill or a candle or an experience that you can do that can just pretend that that didn't exist or shape who you are. Totally. No, I think I, I fully agree with that. And I was also, uh, you know, I was, I was sorry, I'm shouting out Netflix again. I was watching the Taylor Swift documentary. I don't know if you saw it. I haven't, but it's on, it's very high on my list. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And she is talking about how she grew up as, you know, as a young performer, as a high achieving, extremely talented, you know, prodigy essentially. Um, where the only happiness she knew, she knew what happiness was only as it related to pleasing other people and getting sort of pats on the head from the audiences, you know, managers, like whatever. Yeah. Whatever. She was definitely on her way to be like our era's Dolly Parton. Yeah. I mean, until and people, she spoke out yeah. and, and people and people loved her, but then of course the tide turned, you know, people then hate it. Basically it's all about how I dealt with people sort of like rejecting me right. and how I learned that the path towards happiness isn't in, in looking outward, but it's about self-acceptance, et cetera, et cetera, you know, self-love like, but the part that was missing was how did she do that? If indeed it's true that she managed to detach her expectations of what happiness means from pleasing her audience, et cetera. How did she do that? Oh. That's not, and I was like, tell me Taylor, because I want to learn, you know, I want to, <laughs> because it's a lesson. It's an important lesson. Sure. It's, I've been working on it in therapy for like literally 25 years now. <laughs> right, right. I mean, off and on, not, sure. but mostly on, let's face it. So it's like, how, you know, and that's a big question, you know, how do we do it? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see how South Park is going <laughs> to handle this. <laughs> yeah. How do you report or write about things that you love but remain unbiased? Or do you believe every writer is biased? Yeah, I think every writer is biased. I mean, I think to a certain extent we're people. So it's hard to separate your own opinions and preferences. And it's in fact, maybe I, it's it, it, it always is um, interesting to me or I admire it, I guess, but it's sort of alien to me when I see people who seem pretty objective, mm-hmm. like especially people who report on politics or um, who report on 
the court system or, you know, I mean, any sort of hard news um, uh, topic, but where emotions uh, and uh, opinions run, you know, run hot, you know, like, yeah. um, because I don't know that I really would be able to to do that or at least I would feel like a really strong push and pull between like, which is why I'm probably more of a critic, you know, rather than, yeah, I'm not a political uh, reporter uh, because uh, yeah, I I remember seeing there was that um, documentary series, the fourth estate about, um, about the times. I don't know if you saw it. It was on Showtime, I think a couple Mm of years ago. It it was, it was good, but there was one of the guys who, uh, I forget which which reporter it was, but he writes. He's a White House uh, correspondent, correspondent, and um, he said that he even goes as far as to not vote because he re- wants to remain like basically being like a, a total like vessel right. for the news. And I was like, wow, that's intense. Because like, how is that possible? You know. So for me, that's sure. so for me that's very alien. Um, of course, that's kind of an extreme position, I guess, or what seems to be an extreme position, uh, because I'm a woman of opinions, I guess, yeah. and feelings. Um, so, yeah, I think every writer is biased. That said, of course, like you, sh- you should try to look at things in their entirety and yeah. from you know both sides, as they say. Yeah, um, you're friends with John Mayer. <laughs> Mayor, yeah. How did that happen? I hounded him for years. Yeah, yeah. Like, like very publicly, not not in an, any oh, underhanded I I mean, way. I, I, I mean, this was this all happened in public. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. I just. Uh. You know. I. I. This is a story I've told many times, but I've. Uh, I begged him to follow me on Twitter for years. I like. You know. Essentially, trolled him like lovingly. You know, not troll like. You know, but I, then I, when he followed me on Twitter, then he, he left Twitter and I was like, all of this was for nothing. My God, like this is terrible. But then I sort of hounded him to follow me on Instagram. Basically in the end it worked. I didn't know what to tell you. I, I, I'm a, I'm a very lucky, I'm a lucky lady. (laughs) Why is everyone like John Mayer so much? I don't know. He's really funny. Um, he is, uh, I mean, I like him too. Culturally omnivorous. He takes himself seriously, but not too seriously in some ways, probably. Um, he's, um, he's clever. He's like quick and clever. Yeah. Um, he's obviously very handsome. You know, that's probably the reason a lot of people like him. Yeah. Um, you know, he's interested in clothes. He's like the Brad Pitt of music. Interesting. Say more. Well, like in what way? Because. Oh, like that Brad has, Brad is interested in architecture or something or well, whatever no, it is. Because everyone loves Brad Pitt and Brad yes. Pitt is out there enough that you feel a connection to him. Yeah. But you don't really know that much about him. Yeah. Like he'll do interviews and he'll get really serious about stuff. Yeah. But then that's about it. And you don't really yeah. know that much about him. And I yeah. feel like John Mayer's about that. Yeah. And they also are like attached to things that are really strong in people's like experience. So films, you know, sure. S- culturally significant yeah. films. Songs music, that everybody knows. Songs that, everyone, that knows. everyone knows. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they're also like 
they get manipulated through the experience that someone has experiencing their content, right? Yes. So my interpretation of John Mayer or Brad Pitt is mm-hmm. based through the art that they've created that I experience through. Sure. So I, I don't always... Yeah, of course. But yeah. then both of those people have done pretty, you know, from a normal perspective, pretty disruptive and strongly hurtful things towards others uh, publicly... And you, people have you mean a, a in their like love love lives? Yeah, like I, I mean like to be Brad, more blunt, they've yeah. both been pretty trashy to women, right? But people have a lot of sympathy for them, yeah, because they come out apologetic. Yeah, I feel like I feel like in the case of John, I can't you know I can't obviously can't speak for him, but just my and you know I don't I don't know enough about it, but just from. Uh, you know, kind of general impression. It seems to me that he really like took a step back from oh, being sure. public. And I think that's worked well for him. It seems, you know, uh, because he, for a while now, you know, that period of like the, the high tab tabloid tabloid era, um, he was really out there, you yeah. know? And both of those guys that the high tabloid era mm-hmm. was when they were associated with other high tabloid Yes, significant others. Exactly, and I think you know? I think uh, it seems that uh, both of them have really pulled back from that yeah. storyline. So good for them. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, it's live live and learn. You know, I think that's uh, that's a great thing. At the end of the day, too, I want both of them to win so bad. I yeah, I mean, me too. Brad Brad Pitt's there's like Brad there's is a theory. unreal. Like Brad is like this is the moment of Brad, right? Yeah. There's a theory that Brad Pitt didn't write any of his acceptance speeches. Oh really? I yeah. didn't. Oh, acceptance speeches in the in the plural, like yeah, in, speeches. So yeah. every recent award he's won, he's won. Yeah, he's given an acceptance speech that is pretty unbelievable. Yeah, and people and he's said that he just winged it. And he, he said he winged he it, but people said have been that saying he wrote it and he winged that himself. Huh. But like his Oscar speech, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, his BAFTA speech, which he wasn't there for, but he had Margot uh, Robbie Reed. Oh, um, and then he won. No, another I didn't hear award. that. That's interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. I could see that. At I, least with the Oscar, I didn't hear the BAFTA one, but with the Oscar one, it was pretty sharp and sort of, it was like a little political and it was like, yeah. It was really well done. Yeah. Then he quotes the movie back, shouts out Leo. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. Um, anyway, so there's a few things I want to ask you. Yes. I'm going to call this Fry Manners. Okay. How do you feel about AirPods in public? I hate AirPods. Why? They look stupid. <laughs> I'll, I'll die on this hill. Go for it. Apologies to my friend, Chris Black. We, this is our uh, ongoing. Uh, I think Chris will live. Yes. No, he will. <laughs> and he knows my stance. Yeah. Um, how do you feel? How do you order food at a restaurant? In what way? How? Do you like, make eye contact? Do you yeah. greet the waiter? Do you? Yeah. 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 Yeah, of course. Good. Oh, I mean, I, th- I think so. I mean, I, now I'm doubting myself, but yeah, for sure. Like be friendly. Yeah. I went out to dinner the other night and a friend of mine, and I realized this. He never makes eye contact with the waiters or waitress. Really? Yeah. Or the waiter. I guess it's they don't need to be singled yeah. out by their sex. So, but yeah, he never makes eye contact. Interesting. And I'm like, what the? What's wrong with you? Yeah. No, I, I, I think I definitely make eye contact and say yeah. hi and, yeah. Um, phone etiquette. Yes. What's your phone etiquette? I'm probably pretty bad with that. Yeah. Just because I'm like most people, I'm addicted to my phone, but I, I'm trying to get better about it 
Yeah. Yeah. Like certainly if I, I mean, I'm probably the worst with it with my family because I know they'll like love me no matter what and forgive me. Yeah. Like if I go out with a friend, I probably will be not bad with it, but I could be better probably. What's, what's not bad? I mean, I, I will look at the screen. You know, I will like I'll turn my phone down or I'll keep it in my bag. Oh, but, there, okay. You, you'll turn your phone down. No, see, not down. Not down. Like on the other, like upside. Like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. A lot of times, like people are like, no phones at a table, yeah. or phones at a table, but the display is face down. Right. Display. I I do display face down usually. But it's very generous. But it's hard. It's hard. Well, but she, yeah. See, because you work in an in an era and field where but i'm also just addicted i'm bad yeah. it's it's not even just i mean i can there's excuses and i definitely do think that social media and um it's it is pretty imperative to what i do um but i don't want to i don't want to excuse myself it's it's too much and yeah. i i need to but how how <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm pretty know. much addicted, and yeah. I also use it for work, which I is my crutch because I'm like I I need this. Yeah, you I know? mean, I do need this, but I don't need it probably as much. And things could wait, likely, but I don't like to wait for things, and I'm just like constantly needing that like rush, you know? Yeah, not good. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for chatting. I really appreciate your candor and everything. This was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, it was great. Thank All you, right. Jeremy. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to Blammo. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Editing by Brendan Finn, and we're produced by Blammo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram, at Blammo Podcast, and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. If you want even more Blammo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blammo to join the Blam fam and get access to additional interviews, a community slack, special events, and more. Best of all, you're supporting the show. Try it. It feels good. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.